Hi, everyone. This is Andy Hagens, host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Today's episode is a replay of a panel from Alt Expo October 2023. The panel was titled Tax Efficient Investing Strategies for High Net Worth Investors. The panel featured me, Andy Hagens, as well as Michael Johnston from Tax Efficient Investor, Sarah Sullivan from Sugo Capital, and Ashley Tyson from OZ Pros. I think we had a fantastic conversation diving into the nitty gritty of the best tax-free and tax-advantaged investments that are of interest to high net worth investors and the advisors who serve them. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome, everyone, to today's panel, Tax Efficient Investing Strategies for High Net Worth Investors. I'm Andy Hagens, co-founder of Wealth Channel and host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm very excited for this panel. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I know it's near and dear to the hearts of our panelists here. Also, our presenters, I, I believe every single offering we've seen so far at Alt Expo has been a tax advantaged investment offering, which is awesome. I mean, to me, that's a core part of the value of alts, but I want to dive into our panel here. I'm going to start by introducing our panelists. First up, we have Michael Johnston, founder of Tax Efficient Investor. Michael, thanks for providing that little plug for your podcast and welcome to the panel today. Sandy, great to be here. Next up is Sarah Sullivan, CEO at Sugo Capital. Sugo is an investment firm connecting high net worth investors with passive income investments. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good to see you again, Michael. And last but not least, we have Ashley Tyson, founder of OZ Pros, the OZ Sherpa. OZ Pros is a leading provider of thought leadership, expertise, and services in the wide world of Opportunity Zones. I wrote that description myself, Ashley. Welcome to the panel. Thanks, Andy. As always, pleasure to be here with uh, you and Michael and Jimmy and Sarah. Good to meet you. Can't wait to to interact and you know solve the world's tax uh, mitigation <laughs> problems. As it is, we can definitely do that in in forty minutes here, Ashley. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's dive in. So quick housekeeping announcement, just a quick reminder to all of our attendees. If you have a question, just use that Zoom Q&A toolbar. I'll leave a little bit of time towards the end of the panel to answer some questions. The first question I'm going to pose to Michael first, and then if Sarah and Ashley want to join in. Uh, so tax efficiency, at least in my opinion, can be the single biggest driver of investor returns, even more so than alpha. But it seems like too many investors uh, spend almost no time on this aspect yeah. of their investment strategy. So so number one, why is that? And is there anything we can do to help solve that problem, help close that gap, Michael? Yeah, great, great question, Andy. And I, I love that you mentioned alpha. You know, I view tax efficiency as alpha. You know, I, I'm not going to better biotech stocks than the next investor. What I am going to do is I'm going to have a more tax efficient portfolio than 95% of other investors. And therefore I'm going to beat most other investors. And to me, that, that's alpha. And it doesn't matter how you generate it, whether it's picking winning stocks or having a more tax efficient portfolio. 
you, you can't eat gross returns. What matters, Andy, I hear you talk about triple net returns after taxes, after fees, after inflation. So to, to try to answer your question here, why don't people spend more time thinking about it? I think I think there's a lot of reasons. Number one, they don't believe what you just said. They don't believe that it makes a big difference. Um, and I think that's pretty easy to disprove mathematically. I'm not going to go into it here. But um, when you, you start running the numbers and you look at different scenarios, the difference between a tax inefficient and a tax efficient portfolio can be significant. You, know, you get pretty quickly into two, three, four percent a year. And you know, I think it was... Uh, Albert Einstein said the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest or compound returns. So over the long term, that that really adds up. I think the other thing is just briefly, Andy, and then I want to hear what the other uh, panelists have to say here. I've noticed there's a behavioral thing, right? You start talking about taxes and people get scared. They think, oh, man, I'm going to screw this up. I don't want to go anywhere near this. I try to take advantage of, of the tax code. I'm going to end up in jail or with big penalties. And okay, sure, there's there's some gray area, right, Andy? There's people who take advantage of, of things, who push things too far, maybe. Um, but the reality is there's so many things that are very clearly above board. Uh, you know, I like to joke about and complain about the tax code being as long as it is. The upside of that is there's a lot of pages there that make me feel very comfortable that what I'm doing, what some of the other panelists here I'm sure are going to talk about is 100% legal. And in fact, it's what the government wants you to do. It's an, that's, that's what an incentive is. They're trying to incentivize behavior. They want you to, to contribute to your IRA. They want you to take bonus depreciation. They want you to take advantage of solar credits. They want you to invest in opportunities on stuff. So there's this fear component of it, Andy, and it kind of gets into the, the psychological thing. Um, I could talk about this all day, but I, I want us to stop and hear from the other folks here because I suspect they deal with people who have, have seen the light and who get it and who are really excited to take advantage of, of tax opportunities. Yeah, I take your point, Michael. And honestly, with the attendees at Alts Expo, we may be preaching to the choir. I know with yeah. you three, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir. And I know a lot of our, again, our presenters, our attendees are interested in this. But Sarah, in your experience, are are a lot of investors missing the boat? Or you know, when you interact with LPs, are they already focused on tax efficiency? So they love the idea of tax efficiency, but they're not focused on it because they don't fully understand it. So your original question, like, why aren't people who aren't involved in tax efficient investing, why aren't they doing it? I think because taxes aren't sexy. It's like uncomfortable, right? And so I do a bunch of education around like taxes are sexy, especially if you, you know, if it's in your favor. And so making it from this like bad thing into a good thing is one thing we can do for investors. And then another thing is investors don't really understand it. Um, and so I have over here a worksheet if you guys do the QR code. Um, and so what I've done for our investments is if you you can put in a number and it can tell you how is this investment going to infect, affect your taxes. So for instance, if you make 500K this year, you invest 250K in this investment, your taxable income goes down to 312, 312,000 this year. You know, So like if we can lay it out to investors so they really understand tan tangibly, how does it affect them? Um, I think that's what we can really do to help investors. Because I, I think that's the main thing, just like not understanding, then people don't move forward with anything. They don't understand um, and then also in this tax worksheet, I'm pointing to the wrong side, um, we cite the code. So a lot of people are like, oh, but what do you, you know, like what makes this legit? And so in the worksheet, we say, okay, you get, you know, on this investment, you get intangible drilling costs. Here's the 
you know, the IRS code that says this is what you can do and this percent and explains it all. So I think that's those are the two things like people not understanding and having negative um, emotional connotations with tax. And really, that's what the uber wealthy do. Right. <laughs> Just like Michael said, the more we focus on it, the more we keep and 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 even looking at how it can change. I mean, I do this all day long with our investors. When we do strategy calls, even though I'm not a CPA, we just like plug in numbers. So you can see, hey, I, you know, I'm making this 250K investment, but really, what is it costing me? Really, it's costing me $161,000 to make a 250K investment because of how much I'm saving on my taxes in the end this year. So like making it really clear to people, I think is, is um, you know, how we can really help investors. Totally. Actually, I know you have some cool stuff. I, I don't know Opportunity Zone stuff very well, so I'd love to hear your answer. Ashley, Whoa. jump in here. Yeah, so to Michael's point that, uh, you know, the, the compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world, but tax-free compound interest is the ninth wonder of the world. Sherpa style right here. Right. That's uh, you know, you guys can you guys can use that quote, uh, you know, at your leisure. Just make sure you give credit. <laughs> but it's funny because that's exactly the the case. And that's what everybody on this panel is talking about. It's one of the reasons why I went all in on opportunity zones. So as I was crunching the numbers and I was looking at the math, I had a mobile home park that was on the outskirts of Charlotte. And I was looking at what I could do with that mobile home park. And I was like, well, I could get it approved for more spots. I could do all this and that kind of thing. And, and this is at the same time as I'm telling people about opportunity zones and I'm telling them that you can, number one, defer capital gains. So you get a you get a tax deferral on that in, you know, on when you're when you're investing your money and then on the outflow, when you're 10 years into it, you get a step up in basis to fair market value, which not only eliminates capital gains, which is a huge deal, but it also eliminates depreciation recapture. And so as I was looking at that, I was like, okay, wait a second. You mean that I could invest the same amount of time, energy, intellectual uh, ability to find deals and that kind of thing in this one deal inside of an opportunity zone? I got to jump through a little bit of hoops. I got to you know, bring some experts in to help me with that. But then on... So number one, I'm going to defer my taxes on the way in. But then I'm, number two, I'm going to be able to take my income tax-free by using cost seg studies, depreciation, other types of you know tax mitigation strategies. And then on the back end, I'm going to exit that completely tax-free. I'm like, that's an immediate 25% bump on that deal as opposed to where I would be applying my energy in a non-OZ deal. And so I was like, all right, I'm all in. That's why... I love opportunity zones uh, because they allow you to get that much more benefit. On an average deal, it's around a 3% IRR bump. And in real estate investing, that is nirvana. A 3% bump on a cap rate is mind-blowing. And so to everybody's point, it's not about what you make, it's about what you keep. And so if you can... You know, if you can do that, and the cool thing about what I do is that I can then layer on additional tax strategies onto it, you know, like tax credits and other type of stuff. Uh, or to Sarah's point, you know, an oil and gas deal that's inside of an opportunity zone. It's like, man, you know, when, once you start stacking that, yeah. it becomes incredibly powerful. So that's that's what I'm all about. I'm all about uh, force multipliers. And if I can use an element of the tax code as a force multiplier, I'm all in. Yeah. And Ashley, I take your point mentioning that 3% IRR bump. I mean, that that might be equal or greater to manager variance in some of these alternative investment sectors. So, so that's 
you know, everybody who's investing, who's spent any time with private investments, alternative investments, knows that a three percent IRR bump that's essentially risk-free, right? Because the the vehicle itself, the OZ wrapper or the DST wrapper or whatever tax advantaged wrapper we're talking about, it it doesn't really add any risk, right? It's it's a legal structure. It's it's a, it's a vehicle. Um, exactly right. So I, I think we are aligned on that. By the way, we got one question in the Q and A. I just wanted to address real quick. We had a user asking, um, what do we mean when we say high net worth? We're generally at Wealth Channel, we're generally talking about accredited investors when we use that term, high net worth. So that's a net worth of a million or more uh, for an individual. But I also want to point out, you know, a lot of these tax strategies are also applicable to high income folks. Um, so, you know, it almost doesn't matter what your net worth is for some of these strategies. A lot of folks are more interested in offsetting income. So they might be an accredited investor in that they're an individual earning 200,000 or more per year or a married couple earning 300,000 or more per year. And Andy, to that point, you know, if you're going to invest as like a private placement and in a typical alt, you typically need to be an accredited investor. Beautiful thing about opportunity zones is that you do not. You can do your own deal and it it's not about how much money you have or how much capital gains you generate. It's all about how much you're going to make on whatever it is that you're doing. And that can either be real estate or an operating business. So if you've got the next Facebook, you're crazy not to put it in an opportunity zone, put a wrapper around it and make it so that when you exit at 100x, that's coming to you tax-free. Absolutely. Well, my next question, I wanted to ask, what are the most important tax-efficient vehicles for high net worth investors, for accredited investors, for family offices, or high income professionals, once we get beyond the IRA and 401k, right? I, I feel like everybody knows the IRA, everyone knows the 401k. By the way, there are some nuances there that I think a lot of people don't know about. Uh, but I think what's less well known, we have a lot of other vehicles available to us that investors can use. Ashley, I feel like you just addressed the opportunity zones. So uh, skip me, leave there. me last. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll I will skip you then. We'll come back around. Um Sarah, how about you next? Are there any other vehicles beyond IRA, beyond 401k that that you're focused on? Um yeah, so a lot of our investors use a deferred sales trust if they're exiting their business, you know, if they're selling um their dental practice or um their insurance company or something like that and they or even if they're selling a real estate portfolio and they want to move from being an active real estate investor over to a passive investor. And instead of trying to do a 1031, which is really time bound, right? And has a lot of criteria. Um, we see a lot of our investors who are doing a million or more in an exit of a business or real estate go into a deferred sales trust. And that takes away, that vehicle takes away the time crunch of trying to find something and place it either in 45 days or by the end of the calendar year. So um, that I see that as a really popular one. And so for all the investments at Sugo Capital, um, investors can use any vehicle to invest in our investments. So like you said, the IRAs, the 401ks, probably 50% of our investors use their IRAs and 401ks for our investments. And then, yeah, they can use any vehicle. Um, but I think that one's really strong. And, and I see it used a lot, the Deferred Sales Trust. Yeah, and that's a trend that I'm seeing a little bit more. It sounds like Sugo, you guys are on the leading edge of that, maybe. But just we also saw a multifamily presentation earlier today from Urban Catalyst, just sponsors, asset managers being very friendly to all of these different vehicles because understanding 
if it, uh you know sarah if you're a high quality manager then the investor the lp is expecting well i'm going to get good returns out of this investment now if you're going to let me utilize my 401k or ira it's going to sweeten it just that much more right yeah because no one wants to be an active investor with their retirement accounts <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah. absolutely michael how about you i know you know, you're a little bit more into the uh, the niche things, you know, some of these nooks and crannies of the tax efficiency world. Are there any other vehicles that you think LPs that investors should be made aware of, should maybe look into? Yeah, so Andy, I'm going to I'm going to cheat on your question a little bit. You said go go beyond uh, 401ks and, and IRAs, but I actually want to Sarah touched on this a little bit. And Eric Hayden, who presented earlier, talked about the, the IRA. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the Roth IRA for high net worth individuals, um, because I think that a lot of people underutilize that. Like a lot of people will set up a Roth IRA. It's a fantastic vehicle. And then they'll invest in like it makes me cringe, but they'll just have bonds in there um, or they'll have like, these, you know, plain vanilla asset classes. And I think there's an opportunity for, for high net worth individuals to do a couple of things. One is set up a self-directed Roth IRA. So not your like off the shelf, big box Vanguard. And use it to invest in alternatives. Your your Roth IRA, it, it's going to be tax-free withdrawals from that. So it should be your best performing assets, whatever you think is going to have the highest return. I point people a lot of times, there's an article a few years ago in, in a publication called ProPublica or ProPublica. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. But the gist of it was Peter Thiel, who's one of the PayPal co-founders, has $5 billion Roth IRA, B, uh, B billion. Um, and that was in 2018, I think. So it's maybe it's maybe 10 billion now. Um, he started with $2,000 in 1999 and, and grew it. And he's not the only one. This article has a, a bunch of other folks, a lot of hedge fund guys um, who, who have taken pretty small starting points in the, the Roth IRA and turned it into to tens or hundreds of millions or billions in some cases. Um, and, and, you know, they did it by investing in Peter Thiel invested in the, the founder shares in PayPal. Um, and, and you're not going to do that, right? You're not going to turn $2,000 into $5 billion. Um, but, but using the, the Roth IRA to invest in um, asset classes that have potentially high returns is something that I think is worth looking into. It takes a little bit of work. You got to set up a self-directed IRA. There's some risk management you can do there. Um, you know, I, I think Sarah deals with these folks all the time, so she can probably be a good resource there. So I think that's one of them, Andy. And then this next one is minor, but it's kind of something that I'm passionate about. Staying on the, the Roth IRA, set up a Roth IRA for your kids. Um, it's easy to do. The hard thing, they have to have earned income to, to get uh, the money into there. But your kid has a uh, a paper route. They're babysitting. If you own a business and they're they're working for you, um, it's a fantastic way to you know. I'm gonna copy Ashley's quote: "The ninth wonder of the world is uh, is what you know, compound return, tax free compound returns." I mean, that describes a Roth IRA that's set up for a teenager. Um, so by the time it you know by the time they're 59 and a half, it grows to be a whole bunch of money. It's also a great way to teach your kids about money um, and be something that you instruct them on and, and hold their hands on. You don't have to worry about them you know, buying a Ferrari because by the time they, they get access to it, they're going to be 59 and a half. So uh, those concerns go out the window. So again, that's a smaller thing, but uh, set up a Roth IRA for your kids. It's, um, it's one of the smartest things you can do. Michael, it's, I feel like it's a personal challenge for you to put every single dollar you know that you have in theory or in practice into some sort of tax advantaged vehicle, I, I love it. I, I I share that challenge. Um, 
Ashley, we got a question in the chat on this topic that I wanted to direct to you. Uh, Brett asks, has anyone performed a study comparing OZs versus 1031s, assuming the same underlying investment? Um, or if not, could you just speak generally even to OZs versus 1031s? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I regularly say this, that opportunity zone deals kick 1031s in the butt all day long and twice on Tuesdays. Um, it, you know, when you look at the economics of it, you're talking about deferral versus elimination. And so in some situations, 1031s make sense. If you're under the lifetime exemption amount and, you know, you've got a, a an identified property that you really like and that kind of thing, then I would say, yes, 1031s are the way to go. But the key differences between 1031s and opportunity zone deals is number one, that, you know, you, you, yeah, it doesn't have to be real estate for an opportunity zone deal. So you can take, and we we do this all the time, we can take a failed 1031 and we can put it into an OZ fund that we create for them, like a captive opportunity fund. And then they can elect to do whatever they want to with that money uh, and make opportunity zone investments. So we regularly fix failed 1031s with it. The other piece is, is that when you defer with a 1031, effectively, you're kicking that tax can down the road. And ultimately, somebody's going to pay that tax bill. And if you're above the lifetime exemption amount, which by the way, and for everybody on this call, that drops to roughly $10 million for a married couple at the end of 2025. And so it's significant because if you're above $10 million in your net estate that's going to pass to your heirs, then you have to pay 40% on the difference. Anything above 10 million bucks, you got to pay 40% on that within 180 days. And so it's really significant because that lifetime exemption amount has been really high. It's been like 20, I think it's like 24 or $25 million right now. Ashley. There you go. (laughs) 25.84. And so as a result, people, I mean, there's a, uh, there's a lot of people that don't even sniff that. And so that's going to be a significant issue because that 1031, you get a step up in basis and value at death, but the problem is you get a step up at death. And so when you die, that's going to result in a taxable, uh, you know, implication opportunity zones. You do not, it's whatever the amount that you put into the fund you know, when you originally put it into the fund, that's going to go against your lifetime exemption amount. And so if you put in a million dollars, but it's worth 10 million when you die, it's only a million dollars that goes against your estate and your estate steps into your shoes. And then they're going to get that step up in basis to fair market value when they sell after 10 years. That's the significant difference is that it makes the tax go away as opposed to just deferring it. Yeah. And Ashley, I think that's a really important point because when you speak with family offices, they're focused not on not only on growing their wealth with tax advantage investments, but they're also thinking about building a legacy. And so that's where the wealth transfer comes into play, right? And so strategies like you discussed using opportunity zones, those are increasingly important. And I think a key part of the strategy for a lot of family offices who are so invested into private real estate and and with that, I actually want to turn to talk about asset classes a little bit. We we covered wrappers, I think, pretty well. Um, but you know, even even in a taxable account, right? So even outside of these tax efficient wrappers, there are still a lot of asset classes that have inherent tax advantages, right? We heard from a few of them today: farmland, multifamily, ground up construction, obviously oil and gas. 
Um, but I want to ask you all about your favorites. You know, uh, what what are your favorite tax advantaged asset classes for high net worth investors? Sarah, let's start with you. Okay, but this is tough. I'm smiling because I'm like, oh, they're so good. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the government wants to incentivize us to invest in three industries, right? Energy, food, which the last speaker spoke about, um, and real estate. And so right now there are tax advantages uh, for investing in those three things. And each investment will have a different number that you can you know, pass through depreciation, et cetera. Um, but I think what's really important is to know where you need your tax deferral or your tax advantage to happen in in your income, because I'm simplifying this, I'm not a CPA disclaimer, but you have two buckets of income. You have passive income and you have active income. And so depending on where your income is, then you're going to choose which investment is a better tax referral vehicle for you. So for instance, if you're a real estate investor, which I am, so I love investing in, we just had a project that closed and it gave 90% depreciation and loss. Um, that's going to pass through for 2023. So if I invest 100,000, my taxable income decreases by 80,000. That's great. <laughs> so if I only made 100,000 this year, I'd have 10K of taxable income this year. And so if I'm a real estate professional, then I love that, right? But if I'm not, and I have some passive real estate investments, um, but it's not producing a ton of income, but I have, you know, I'm earning 500, a million dollars a year in W-2 income, then the tax advantage over here in real estate doesn't help me that much. So instead I'm going to focus on oil and gas or energy investments that will give me, you know, 75% tax deferral on my total AGI. So that includes active income. You know, so if I earn 500K a year, I invest 250K, I can reduce my taxable income down to 312K per year. So that's a really strong incentive for W 2 earners. So, I, what is my favorite? Those two are my favorite, and it depends on where your income is. Um, that would kind of lead me to suggest one or the other um, for your tax strategy. Another thing is, that's important to realize about these two asset classes, though, is in real estate. Um, you can bank your depreciation and loss. So say, you know, I make that 100K investment into real estate and I get that 90K loss, but I didn't actually make any income this year um, for one reason or another. I can take that 90 and I can save it. I can save it for next year or the year after or the year after. I can save it until I use it um, for that bucket of income. Now over here in the active side, if I get that 75% write-off or deferral uh, for this year, it's use it or lose it. So on the active side, um, I often say, hey, you know, don't invest more than you need in in the oil and gas type investments because unless you just love the investment. But as far as the tax strategy, it's use it or lose it um, on the on the energy side um, for most all energy incentives that I know. So you want to make sure that you calculate it exactly and then you know make that investment for what you can use this year and save anything else for you know another year that you can use it. Um, and the thing is, too, that these things are changing, right? So someone probably already talked today about how this bonus depreciation, you know, being able to do cost seg and intangible drilling costs and all these different asset classes, it's stepping down. And, um, you know, Congress passed these uh, incentives a while ago. Now they're being voted out. Hopefully they're going to be voted back in. But as an investor, 
we have to pay attention to these things because the strategy that we have today may not be a viable strategy in five years when we're exiting these investments that we get into in 2023. What does the landscape look like in 2028? A lot of people ask me, okay, well, that's a good strategy for this year, Sarah, but when I exit your investments, what am I going to do? And it's like, well, we got to see what 28 looks like. <laughs> we don't know yeah. what the rules are going to be in 2028 because the numbers are changing. Um, so as investors, you know, you can make a plan today, but then you have to always pay attention every year. Um, was it like two years ago, they were planning to change the rules around um, IRAs. Um, I can't remember what it was now, but it was like everyone was up in arms. There there were all these, um, uh, you know, people kind of fighting against and, um, you know, it got kind of voted out, but it, it's a sign that things can change. So always pay attention. But those are my two favorite are energy and real estate. Um, as far as our the tax advantage asset classes. Yeah. And I take your point, Sarah, that it's really contextual, right? It depends literally on, on a year by year basis. Yeah. Not only partially because what's Congress doing, what what's happening with regulation, are there different provisions that are sunsetting? And also what's your income situation? And are you a, a GP or an LP? And you know, so it is contextual. I always recommend working with a professional good CPA yeah. will more than uh, pay for themselves if they can give you good advice in that regard. Michael, I want to turn to you next. I actually got a question about you. We had a, an attendee ask, I missed the intro for Michael Johnston. Is he a CPA and how can I reach out to him? Well, I, I believe you're a CFA, not a CPA, but I do want to plug your podcast again, Tax Efficient Investor. I know you have a lot of information on there, but you're not a CPA. Is that correct? I'm not a CPA. I am a, a CFA charter holder, uh, but but not a CPA. Uh, and thanks for the, the podcast plug. And I'll just plug that Sarah was on my podcast and it was fantastic. So if you want to hear more about, uh, she's been talking a little bit about energy. If you want to go deeper into it, uh, go look up that episode with Sarah. It was great. I learned a ton. Well, Michael, real quick, do you have a favorite asset class independent of wrapper for tax deductions? Well, you know, I don't know that there's a, a favorite, Andy. I'll just, I guess, I'll just mention um, a, a couple other ones. Um, we we had a, a presentation here, I think, right before this one about farmland, um, and uh, Josh Guggenheim was mentioning there's some advantages with that. Um, actually, I've uh, done a podcast episode with with Josh as well, where he went a little bit deeper into that. So he mentioned there's a, a lot of depreciation that you can take. Um, you know, he made the point. Um, I grew up on. A, I grew up in the Midwest, and farms in the Midwest are not like farms in in California. Um, it's not just corn, as far as the eye can see. Uh, farms in, in California that that Josh is dealing with, um, specialty farmland, uh, a lot of equipment there, a lot more equipment um, th than you think of as as farms in the Midwest. So, um, I think farmland can be pretty interesting for the the reasons he mentioned. They're doing some stuff with with property tax savings as well. So, uh, it's kind of a whole bunch of layers with farmland. Um, you know, I've also heard of folks doing interesting things with uh, historic preservation credits. There have been some, you know, to kind of tie together a few threads here. Um, Sarah was, was talking about the inherent uncertainty. Um, Congress recently removed a lot of the benefits from conservation easements. But what they left in place is credits for historic preservation of buildings. Um, so, so that door is still open um, and, and there's ways to... Essentially, what you get instead of uh, pass-through loss, uh, there, there's funds that will 
um, establish a, a historic preservation easement. And then what gets passed through to the investors is effectively a charitable contribution. Um, so if you're, you're itemizing already, um, there's a way for that to flow through and, and to tie back to, to Sarah's point, which was such a good one why I keep referencing it. You got to understand where you want those offsets. Um, is, it, is it active or passive income? So um, a couple other there, Andy, I second what Sarah said about uh, energy for sure, uh, real estate, and then farmland and, and the historic preservation credits are um, a couple things. I want to hear Ashley talk about solar. I know that's what his answer is going to be. And I think it's, well, uh, you knew it was coming. Hold that thought real quick, because that is my next question to Ashley. But a, a quick question from an attendee is asking, what's the basic explanation of a quote unquote rapper that we've been mentioning? And I'll, I'll take a crack at that and then let anyone else correct me. But when I Good use question. the word rapper, at least, I'm talking about a vehicle, either a legal or regulatory structure where an investment offering is offered under a specific structure, right? Like it could be a REIT, it could be a qualified opportunity fund, could be a private partnership. And like within an opportunity fund, you know, you can own farmland or you can own all kinds of different assets, you know, ground up real estate. You could even have a venture capital fund inside that OZ wrapper. So the wrapper could be a DST or a 1031 or, you know, a deferred sales trust. So Delaware statutory trust or a deferred sales trust. Right. So those wrappers, they're independent of the underlying asset class, but they often come with massive tax advantages, you know, especially opportunity zones, some of the other, uh, things we've mentioned. By the way, Michael, when you mentioned the historic preservation credits, I think you took us into double digits for types of tax advantage investments for this panel. So that was an internal goal of mine. So thank you for mentioning that one. But Ashley, this last question, I want to give the floor to you. We're talking about hidden gems here, really. So we, we've talked about a lot of, I don't think they're really little known secrets, you know, in terms of oil and gas, multifamily, maybe opportunity zones. It's a little more niche, uh, less people know about it. But, but even within opportunity zones, are there any hidden gems that you think more people need to know about that that you know that you like a lot? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a huge fan of stacking credits and stacking the incentives offered by different vehicles. And so inside of an opportunity zone wrapper, we can stack other types of credits on top of that. And so to Sarah's point, I love depreciation, but I love credits even more because depreciation is an offset you know, credits are dollar for dollar. And so, and you usually have more flexibility when you're talking about the credits and sometimes you can even sell them and generate cash off of them. So a couple of things that generate credits that I am hugely a fan of. So the first is Ohio. The state of Ohio has a 10% sellable tax credit for any opportunity zone deal that gets done in Ohio. Uh, it's, and, and, as a, and as a result, it's an amazing how much money has flooded into that state because of that. The second one is Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico has incentives for specific things that they want to see happen, you know, like hospitality. Uh, and there's a 40% tax credit in Puerto Rico for anybody that's doing a hospitality asset, which effectively means uh, something that's got more than 14 hotel rooms or Airbnb, you know, uh, type rooms. So that's, you know, and, and that 40% tax credit, it comes over four years, but it's sellable. 
And it's you know typically trading like most tax credits do at around ninety cents on the dollar, and so as a result, you you can think about that that if you've got forty percent that's coming back in the first four years of your deal that you can sell for ninety cents on the dollar, that really juices your return, and it it you know really de-risks it as well. And so uh, in Puerto Rico, they've also got a 25% tax credit for kind of necessary improvement projects like solar, like wind, uh, like uh, necessary businesses, that kind of thing. And that leads me to the final one, which is solar itself. And so whether it's in an opportunity zone or not, I love what, you know, the solar was great before the Inflation Reduction Act. It's amazing after the Inflation Reduction Act because the IRA locked in that 30% tax credit, and then it uh, provided for additional adders if you are using American-made or if you're in energy zone or if you're in a low-income uh, you know, housing situation that's in one of those areas as well. And so because after the IRA, you can get upwards of 70% investment tax credit that now also, because of the IRA, are transferable. And so you could either utilize them yourself or you could sell them, but still keep the depreciation aspect on that solar deal. And so as a result, uh, there's been a massive amount of interest in how you can do solar, how you can incorporate it into smaller projects and not just do the 10 megawatt fields like the major developers are doing. So as a result, we are seeing a huge spike in people looking to put you know, one megawatt systems or half a megawatt systems on the projects that they're doing in opportunity zones because of the power of what that offers. I, I love that hidden gem. By the way, that relates to a question we actually just had a, an attendee ask about tax credits for renewable energy compared to oil and gas. I think Ashley just addressed that naturally with one of his hidden gems. And I mean, personally, you know, for me, it's it's. I don't need to choose. I like tax credits with oil and gas. I like tax credits with renewable energy. I like all forms of tax efficient investing. We only have a couple minutes left, Sarah. Let me let me, let me let me dive in real fast on that, and then I want to turn this over to Sarah because I want her to talk about the oil and gas because they they each have their own kind of nuances, and based upon your situation, solar could be good. But it might be better to look at an oil and gas play. And so, you know, I think that you got to look at both of them because solar, especially if it's a syndicated deal, might not necessarily be for everybody. Because if unless you have that passive income to offset against that passive depreciation, you're not going to be able to take advantage of that in a syndicated solar deal. And but oil and gas has figured that out. So teeing that one up for you, Sarah. Thank you. And it goes along with the, the question that I saw in the Q&A as well. Like, how does, why is some, you know, tax advantage against your passive income? Why is some over here? You can use it on your active income. Um, and again, if you use this QR code, which I'm not saying we have, um, we'll break it down and show you how it works. So you can put numbers in and calculate it and see how the different asset classes can work for your situation, whether it's passive or active income and how much money you want to put in each bucket and each investment. But the difference is, the big difference is when you sign up for an oil and gas investment, you sign up as a GP. And so that's how you can take the, the, the tax um, advantage against your active income. And so a lot of people are like, oh, but that makes me kind of nervous. And am I now liable for something that I don't have control of? Well, a couple of things um, when I started investing in oil and gas a couple of years ago uh, that made me comfortable. One is, what do I own in my name? Nothing. 
I own nothing in my name. So if I sign up as a GP on an oil and gas investment, even though I'm, you know, a passive investor in it, and someone goes like there's nothing no, no one can sue me for anything. There's there's nothing that I own in my name. Um, and so all my passive investments, all my real estate holdings, all my other investments are, are in different vehicles, right? So there's one thing. And then also you sign up as a GP, but what you can do is you can change over in year two. So like in year one, so if I make an investment in 2023, so this is for you, Carl, and anyone else wondering this, if you make an investment in 2023 and you take your 75% um, tax deduction for this year, then in 2024, you can switch over and be an LP now. And so your window of risk, it can be just a couple months if you want it to. Um, so that's an idea, uh, which a lot of our investors do as well. Yeah. And Sarah, we're about out of time, but yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think the the fact that in an oil and gas deal, you can invest as a GP or as an LP, and then you brought up that you can even start as a GP offset active income and then convert to a limited partner. That's incredibly powerful. I think it's one of the reasons oil and gas is so popular. So great point to bring up. Tremendous insights on our panel. We're officially out of time. We've got to get to our next presentation here in a minute or so. So I'm going to cut you all loose. But Sarah Sullivan from Sugo Capital, Ashley Tyson from OZ Pros, Michael Johnston from Tax Efficient Investor. Thanks so much for joining me on the panel. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.